You're listening to episode 26 of Chirps, a St. Louis Cardinals podcast for Birds on the Black. I'm Tara, he's Alex, and we're wondering, is this offense too good to be true? Hey everybody, thanks for checking out another episode of the show. Tara Wellman and Alex Crisofoli back with you again this week as the Cardinals are currently trying to close out game two of the series with the Washington Nationals. Andrew Miller is on the mound to try to get the last couple outs of this one, which could be interesting. Alex, it's been a bit of a roller coaster as far as Andrew Miller is concerned, but outside of Miller, let's just start here. Man, this Cardinals team has suddenly gotten really fun to watch. Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. I was at the game last night, and when they were down 3 nothing, it didn't even phase me like it would have in uh, recent years, I guess. You know, it was cold, so there was part of me that was wondering, like, yeah, I wonder if this is going to be one of those nights where the bats are silent. But mostly I was just thinking, like, you know, three runs, not a big deal. Three runs doesn't beat this team. You know, they're going to score runs. They're going to they're gonna. They're gonna uh, do just fine. Um, and sure enough, that's what happened. And what's funny is as, as Miller is trying to close this out, I just realized that the Cardinals have only scored in two innings yeah. in, in these first two games. And they're, I, I certainly don't want to jinx anything, but they are on the cusp of, well, cusp, that's not a good word to use. They have a, they have a decent chance to be up, uh, to win the first two games in this series. Um, very soon. But I say that like, I, as Miller is pitching to Adam Eaton. And it, we'll strike, it is striking out Adam Eaton. There we go. There, there we go. go. All there right. we go. Two outs. We were a little yeah. worried uh, trying to start this show before the game ended, yeah. but when, it, when Andrew gonna... Miller, when it was Andrew Miller, we figured uh, we might have a little bit of time. <laughs> this game's going to end, or this game needs to end, or the, the first couple minutes of this might be pretty bad, as I'm like not even listening and just like watching the television. But no, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> hopefully, Andrew Miller can uh, do something about that. Um, but. To your point, yeah, it's it's interesting. I also noticed that they've done this thing where they'll have one big inning, maybe score another run in a, a single inning elsewhere in the game. But I guess that's not super uncommon, but I wouldn't mind seeing, and we're going to talk about the Cardinals offense today, but I wouldn't mind seeing them spread the scoring out a little bit so that they're not always relying on that one big inning. But the good news is that inning can come at any time because of how things are going with the guys at the plate. Before we dive into that, this will be, uh, the show will go up on Wednesday as it always does. And it will be uh, another opportunity to see Miles Michaelis pitch. And we've seen him look really great. We've seen him struggle more than I think we expected. But before we go offense in the conversation, I know several people have asked me lately, I don't know about you, Alex, but you know, what's going on with Miles Michaelis? Are you worried about Miles Michaelis? Did we expect too much of Miles Michaelis? So where do you stand with kind of how you are watching Michaelis so far this season? I am very worried about Miles Michaelis. Uh, you know, I, I watched his last start. Um, I'm trying to remember who that would have even been against. Like the baseball season's crazy. You know, like by the time they move on to the next game, I've already forgotten what happened. You know, a mere <laughs> 24 hours ago. But so, who did we play in the series before this? Refresh my memory. I'm looking it up. <laughs> <laughs> it was not that long ago. Why can't I remember it? Oh, the uh, the Cincinnati. Reds. The Reds. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> so I, I was watching Michaelis and that star and he just didn't seem to be hitting his spots. Like I was watching Yachty's glove and it seemed to kind of be all over the place. And you know, that's, I feel like that's a problem for a pitcher like him. Like he is not striking anybody out and that, you know, striking guys out was never his thing, but he, he's striking out like 13% of batters, which would have been below average like 30 years ago, you know, let alone um, in this day and age, 2019, when everyone's striking out everybody. Um, and, you know, he's still not walking a ton of batters, but he's walking more batters than he did last year. But yeah, I certainly worry if he's not hitting his spots that, you know, that this could be, this could not be what we want for a guy that we just inked to uh, four more years and 68 million, or I forget exactly what it was, but uh, you know, obviously the, the requisite reminder that it's still very early and, you know, he had some not great starts at the beginning of last season, obviously turned out great, but yeah, I am concerned. Yeah. It's interesting. I was thinking about this in preparation for this conversation, because I knew we were going to talk about him, but also because I've had a number of people ask me about him And the one thought that I had about what may be going on is that we talked a lot last year about the fact that Miles Michaelis isn't a guy that's going to overpower anyone, but he throws strikes. He's aggressive. He's going to go right after guys. And this year, it seemed, before I dove into any numbers, it seemed that maybe the league has figured that out, right? So they know he's going to come right after them. They know he's going to throw strikes. So they're swinging a bit more aggressively at some of the pitches that would have been called strikes for Michaelis last year. So that's almost more eye test than it is uh, actual fact based on numbers. But I did look at a couple of things. He's using the sinker more this year, which was actually his least effective pitch last season. The slider, though, that was one of his most effective pitches last year is getting hammered. Opponents have like a 900 slugging percentage against the slider this year. And it was they're only slugging 245 on that pitch last year. Plus, the barrel percentage is up. The overall swing percentage is up. So it looks like maybe the adjustment that opponents have made on Michaelis is recognizing that he's a guy that's going to throw strikes and they're going after those strikes more as opposed to letting him get ahead in counts. The thing that I will be interested to see, and the reason why maybe I would say I'm not worried about Michaelis at this point, but sort of cautiously intrigued, I don't know what the, the, the appropriate word choice is there, but it's that the this this game is all about adjustments, right? And if the league is adjusted to something that he's doing, he's altered what pitches he's using more this season compared to what he did last year. And Andrew Miller did just close out the game against the Washington Nationals, by the way. So uh, deep sigh of relief there. And the Cardinals take the first two of the series. But if Michaelis can do the same thing and adjust again to what he's seeing from opposing hitters this year, then I think he'll be all right. It's just a matter of I'm not the only one with access to those numbers, right? So they all know the same things that I just told you. And it's a matter of executing a a bit differently or being less predictable so that guys, you know, maybe aren't as confident and aggressive in what they're swinging at. So that's sort of, I don't know how much you can take out of the first month of a season when you're looking at stats like that, but I don't know if there's a silver lining or, or maybe a, like a glass half full, don't panic yet. <laughs> maybe that's it. 
Yeah, I, I think if the rest of the rotation was doing fine, he'd kind of be able to blend in more um, with, you know, whatever issues he's having and, and we wouldn't care as much. But, you know, the way the rotation's going now, uh, with an exception of uh, Flaherty, if, if one of the starters, like, makes it to the seventh inning, it's like, oh, wow, look at this. You know, it's like uh, <laughs> almost like watching the moonlight. I don't know about that. But it's it's just like – yeah, and, and even Flaherty's, you know, not having that great of a season, but I still feel I still feel pretty comfortable with him. It, it just seems like, you know, pardon the pardon the expression, but it does seem like almost like a house of cards with this rotation right now. That you know we're 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 putting a lot on the offense, and you know that's fine because the offense is really good. But you know, Michaelis has the lowest strikeout rate for I, I believe I saw this earlier this week for all qual qualifying pitchers and yeah i think i also heard i I can't remember where i heard it but i I think i heard someone say that he gave up more hits last season in the national league than anyone um and again i guess that's not too surprising because part of his thing is he you know he allows the ball to be put in play and especially like like with this offense i mean excuse me with this defense you know i I think he has a pretty good defense behind him so that doesn't necessarily concern me um, but you know, it seems to be the, the home runs, you know, and whatnot. It's just not, it's just not great. So I'm, I'm not feeling, I'm not panicking, but yeah, I, I don't blame anyone for feeling a little bit worried. Yeah. It's, it's certainly not what you want to see from the guy who is expected to be your ace. But as you mentioned, the fact that the Cardinals offense is kind of firing on all cylinders right now is a nice little cushion for this starting pitching. So let's talk about that because it's been fascinating watching the transition or the progress, I guess, of the Cardinals offense since the first week of the season where it looked like they were going to strike out 50% of the time and, you know, maybe score here and there on a home run. Well, all of a sudden they're so fun to watch because you feel like they can score at any time and in any way with anyone at the plate, anyone up and down that lineup, one through eight, man, you feel like they can start a rally. And that kind of depth is pretty extraordinary, I feel like. It's not, I mean, it's something we've talked about with the Cardinals teams in the last couple of years because they were supposed to be deep, but it didn't actually work out that way. All of a sudden, we're seeing a team that is as deep if not more so than it was supposed to be on paper yeah they have and again it's early but as we stand right now they have seven guys with uh at least 60 plate appearances who are hitting well above average Mm -hmm. um and obviously that doesn't include Yadier Molina because he hasn't been hitting the ball that well but we don't care that it doesn't include Yadier Molina because that's not really why he's in the lineup anyway you know we always kind of look at if, if Yadier's doing well Wait, speaking of which, did he get a hit tonight? I don't think he did. I don't think he did. Okay, so that hitting streak streak. is over. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember like two years ago when he had like a 20-game hitting streak but only batted like 270? Yeah. Right. That was one of my favorite things. (laughs) Anyway, um, you you know, we don't really care if if, if Yadier Molina is batting a little bit below below average, you know. So to have this deep of a lineup – and and that also doesn't include Matt Carpenter, who who I don't know how to say it. He just looks awful right now. I mean, he's – has he – I think he struck out seven times so far in, in these first two games, yeah. and he came very close to having five tonight. Which, um, and but you know, I'm not worried about Carpenter. You know, I he's 
always seemed to be the type of guy that's going to be streaky and, you know, maybe he needs to take a night off and, you know, eventually his bat's going to get going. So I'm, I was trying to think earlier, earlier today, if I could think of a lineup as deep as this one, I, I could, I'm not saying it's the best Cardinals lineup um, it, that comes to mind, um, but I, I'm not saying it's not either, but I can't think of one that's as deep as this that, you know, brings a, uh, a guy up in the seventh spot. And I feel very good at, with the person at the plate. And not only that, but the guy in the seventh spot isn't always the same guy, right? So it's it's the it's one through eight plus at least one guy that's on the bench that you feel pretty confident with. That's uh, that's what's so impressive to me. Oh, yeah. So I, I remember, I, I think it was back on April 11th when they uh, were, were trying to complete that four-game sweep against the Dodgers at home. And yeah. it was a day game, and they were kind of trotting out that getaway <laughs> lineup because they were getting uh, ready to head to Monterey. And so in the lineup, instead of the regulars, were uh, Jose Martinez, Tyler O'Neill, Jed Jerko, and, and Matt Wieters. And, you know, that's a far cry from, and, you know, I don't mean – I don't mean any offense by this, but that's a far cry from Peter uh, Borges and uh, Greg Garcia and Tony <laughs> Cruz. You know, it it really makes a big difference when your getaway lineup. I forget who I forget who said. It. I think uh, Alan Medlock said he thought that the getaway lineup could win. You know, eighty two, eighty three games, and that, that makes a big, big difference. Yeah, but when you mentioned this to me, I. Um, started thinking about the the offensive firepower that stands out in my memory, which obviously only goes back so far. I threw this out on Twitter, and there were a, a number of people who were bringing up 87 or even further back than that. That's a little bit beyond my uh, my catalog of Cardinals teams to remember, but I did throw it out there and asked, you know, what's the best Cardinals offense that you remember as far as a, a, an entire team that – put together the greatest offensive run. And I had a feeling I knew what the answer was going to be, at least overwhelmingly. And it was, in fact, 2004, which, of course, just featured some of the the greats of kind of this era of Cardinals baseball. You're looking at Albert Pujols and Scott Rowland and Jim Edmonds and Ray Lankford. I mean, that team was pretty special as far as the the people who were a part of it. And that season was pretty extraordinary as well. Of course, you know, winning the number of games that they did, pushing um, straight into uh, the the World Series, will just end the conversation about what happened there. But winning 105 games is is no small feat. However, I went looking at some of the other teams in the recent Cardinals past for comparison, and you mentioned this as well, but. The, the 2004 team collectively put up a 107 WRC+. Plus. The 2011 team, which we often talk about as a team that kind of just got lucky at the right time, put up 112 <laughs> and had a lineup that when you look at the numbers these guys posted, it's kind of crazy because, of course, you had Lance Berkman, who was great that year, Matt Holiday, who was great that year. Of course, Albert Pujols doing his thing. You had uh, a pretty decent version of Alan Craig and David Freeze, um, John Jay, Yadier Molina doing his thing. I mean, if you go up and down that lineup, you've got guys hitting above average pretty much all the way through as far as your regulars are concerned. 
And that surprised me that it was the 2011 team that we all kind of shudder about because of how they almost didn't even make the postseason. That team was actually pretty legit. Yeah, it's also pretty funny thinking of all the times, especially in the postseason, that Skip Schumacher was batting second on, yeah. on that team. But not, don't forget about, did you say Nick Punto, the shredder? I, feel I like, didn't. Okay, I yeah, didn't. In his yeah. uh, short time that season with the Cardinals, I, I, he probably had at least 200 at-bats. He was, he was a really good offensive player. Uh, yeah, the 2004 team is really interesting because you're, you're going to be hard-pressed to find uh, a team, uh, I, I guess, more – top heavy than that like to have those three guys um basically Edmonds and Roland having career years at the plate uh yeah Albert Pujols having a very Albert Pujols season at the plate uh Larry Walker when he came over was um amazing too like like he put up big numbers in that last two months or month and a half whatever it was um until the playoffs started I, I mean it's very hard to think of an offense um at the top that can compete with that. But like, you know, they also had Mike Matheny who, who, uh, mm-hmm. very good, uh, defensive catcher could not hit the ball. Edgar Renteria was, you know, he, he would, I guess kind of ebb and flow, but I think that year he was a little below average. Uh, Tony Womack had a career year, but he still wasn't that great, you know? Um, and so I, I think this team, and, you know, again, this is we're all acknowledging this stuff could sound very silly a month from now. But what we're seeing right now from this team, a team that doesn't really strike out, you know, compared to the rest of the league. Uh, again, Matt Carpenter, the last couple of games, uh, notwithstanding, um, a team that's that's doing a decent job uh, drawing walks. They're above league average right now. You know, from top to bottom, I feel very comfortable about this team. Um you know, whether it's like, you know, six, seven, eight guys coming up or, or whatnot. Like, it's just, there's, like you said, they're just really, really fun to watch. And it's, it's really funny because a couple of weeks ago, after the Friday night game against the Mets, when they squandered a lot of opportunities with runners and scoring position. And the next day, I kind of looked at the stats and I was like, yeah, they're not doing very well when they have these sort of opportunities. And I was like, you know, we'll have to revisit this, you know, a month from now, see if that has changed. That basically changed dramatically, like within five days of riding that, you know. And that's obviously the fun of, well, maybe not the fun, the the whatever you want to call it, of riding things in April. That you know, this things, these things can change on a dime. And yeah, you, you know, they're not just this homer, you know, homer nothing offense. They're scoring runs in other ways, like you said, and it's it's really really fun to watch. Uh, they scored a run tonight on Colton Wong bunting for a base hit yeah. with the bases loaded and two outs i, I, think I mean I, come on <laughs> I, I think i saw I, I think craig edwards tweeted that since 2003 that's only been done successfully eight times or something something <laughs> yeah. crazy like that uh and man that was a perfect bunt that was awesome uh you know when you have guys uh who I guess are versatile like that, it kind of changes things. You know, this isn't like that 2016 team where we just had a bunch of lumbering, you know, like Brandon Moss and Grichik and, um, you know, not that those guys aren't valuable, but man, it kind of just seemed like feast or famine with those guys. And it doesn't feel that way right now. And the other thing that I think is so interesting and, and compelling about this lineup, the same guys can generate runs in different ways, right? Colton Long bunted for a base hit with the bases loaded and two outs 
and a run scored. Colton Wong can also hit home runs. He can also hit doubles in the gap. He can also take an extra base when, you know, somebody picks up a base hit behind him. And he's not the only one that's like that. Paul DeYoung can do that. We've seen Paul Goldschmidt do that. Even Marcelo Zuna has done a little bit of that. So, and, and obviously we've seen Dexter Fowler do that when when he's, um, you know, been in the lineup as well. So that's what's so interesting to me about this. When you look at that 2004 team, you kind of have a pretty solid profile of who those guys are as as hitters, and they're so good at what they do. But this year's team, that versatility isn't necessarily just because there's a, a mix of guys who have different abilities. It's a lineup of guys who can all do different things, which it feels a little bit unique to me, but maybe it's just because we haven't seen it with the Cardinals in a while. Yeah. And, uh, Sorry, I was just calculating this thing in my head because uh, Paul DeYoung hit another double tonight. And, uh, you know, I, I love doing these. Uh, they're on pace for such and such uh, in April. And uh, I guess we only have a few hours left of April, so I should get, get these in <laughs> while I can. But uh, he's on pace for 78 doubles this season, uh, which would be really good. Yeah, <laughs> it, would, it would be very good. Um, if you look around the league, they're not the only offense that's really good. The Dodgers have a very good offense. The Cubs have a very good offense. Uh, so I, I remarked in, in something I wrote, uh, I guess, earlier this week that, you know, after this series with the Nationals and, um, you know, we have the Cubs coming up this weekend. And I forget who we have coming up after the Cubs. I'm going to look right now, but I feel like Phillies, it's a pretty, I believe. Yeah, Phillies. Yeah. It's gonna be it's gonna be fun to see if this how this team can mash against those teams as well, um, because you know obviously the Cubs are a very good offense, uh, and that could be a very fun series in Wrigley. So I feel, and I you know this could very much be recency bias. You know we're nineteen and ten, best record in the National League. I feel like this is the most fun team easily since I almost want to say since two thousand thirteen. Yeah. Uh, 2015 was a blast, but man, that was, it felt like they were almost holding on for dear life. Um, you know, you know, you know, <laughs> yeah. when the Cubs and Pirates turned it on, there were a lot of like three, two wins that season, a lot of two, one wins, you know, that, that pitching staff was just amazing. Um, and they just came through time and time again. Uh, 2014, uh, you know, that was like, I believe like what a 90 win team. And, and you know, that was a very good one. That was a very good team, but the 2013 team was a lot of fun. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of it was, you know, unsustainable fun. Um, at least going into the next year, the way they hit, you know, with runners in scoring position and and whatnot. But I, I watch this team now, and it's kind of like I want to return to what I said earlier. It just it has that, you know, dare I say it, like that 2004 feel where I just don't feel like they're out of out of a game when they get down early. Yeah, that's something that I, I don't know that I've really felt a whole lot of since kind of that. I mean, like you said, 2015 was cool more because of the pitching than because you felt like they were always in it, even if they were down early. Um, that 2013 team, you felt like anytime they had runners in scoring position, they were probably going to score. So that was fun. But I keep saying it and I feel like a bit of a broken record already. And the fact that it's just about to be May and we're already talking like this is probably setting us up for a crushing defeat later in the season. But the reality is any given player on any given day can start a rally that will change the entire tone of the game. And it can start with a base hit. It can start with a home run. It can start with 
you know, a hit by pitch that then turns into taking an extra base on a, a base hit from the guy behind it. I mean, that's what's so exciting because it's unpredictable in the best way possible because you don't feel like it's either a home run or a strikeout. You don't feel like if they get down, there's no way they can come back. And and it can be any one of those guys in the lineup. I think one thing that we haven't talked a whole lot of, about is that Matt Carpenter isn't playing well, but it hasn't mattered because everyone else is. And even so, he's still, you know, he's put himself in a position to score when, you know, he takes a walk or, or whatever the case may be. It might not be as often as he would like or as we would all like as when we're watching, but even he, he's been part of some of these big scoring rallies as well. So a lot of people, 2013 was the other big year that a lot of people mentioned on Twitter as far as the best offenses. That team was kind of weird when you go back and look at it as well, because it's a lot of names that you feel like, how in the world <laughs> were they as good as they were that season? Um, and, you know, then you look at where a lot of those guys are now and you realize that was probably just a, a weird anomaly year for a lot of those guys. But yeah, I, I don't remember the last team that was this much fun to watch, except for like the Matt Carpenter Cardinals in August of last year. <laughs> but that was just fun because he was hitting out of his mind, not because collectively they were doing all of the little things well. Yeah, and regarding Carpenter, I, I you know he has a below a three thirty three on base right now because what he went you know zero for four tonight with a walk. So yeah, but you know you look at his career, he's always right around that three seventy five three eighty mark. Uh, so I feel pretty confident that that's gonna that's gonna turn eventually. Um, I'm curious because I was thinking about this earlier. I feel as though in recent years, the one player we never wanted to get hurt or have to go, um, I don't know, if you had to go several days without him, it just seemed like, you know, it wasn't going to be great. That player was always Yadier Molina. Um, part of that had to do with him. Uh, part of it had to do with, uh, he just never, we just never really had a decent backup uh, to him for the last couple seasons until, until this year, at least that looks to be the case so far. I was trying to think about who that player is for this team, and I'm curious to on on your thoughts on this. But I think it's Paul DeYoung for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I for how well he's playing shortstop right now, and obviously for how well he's hitting, I think he might be the. I don't know if most valuable is the right word, but the most irreplaceable Cardinal right now. And I think there's arguments to be made for Colton Wong as well. Obviously. Paul freaking Goldschmidt at first base. <laughs> um, who do you think? And actually, before you answer that, if DeYoung, when he uh, you know has a day off, who 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 is playing shortstop right now? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Um, no, I mean I think the the idea is that Jerko and and Munoz are guys that can both be in that okay, spot well, if necessary. Let me interrupt real quick because I want to ask a really really stupid question. Is Munoz on the 25-man right now? I, I actually, a, as I was saying that, I was like, is he even there? There's been so much I, like I, up and down I, right now. I, I should really know the answer <laughs> to this. And like, I feel really dumb. Um, yes. Okay. Is. I haven't seen him in a while. Okay. So I guess he, either he or Jerko would be the shortstop. Okay. Yeah. All right. Go, go ahead. Yeah. I do think there's an argument to be made for Paul Goldschmidt because he's Paul Goldschmidt. But I think there's an argument to be made for Colton Wong because – Similar to the the 
vacancy if DeYoung missed time at shortstop. There's no other defender that can do what Colton Wong does at second base. But I really do think that it's Paul DeYoung right now because there just isn't someone else that can provide both offensively and defensively. There's not much depth as far as the shortstop position is concerned. I think he would be losing a significant amount of defensive range if you take him out of the equation, whether it's Jerko or Munoz. And I think that what he's done in the middle of that lineup is underrated as far as how significant it has been because he's not always the guy that's driving in the runs, but in many cases, he's the guy that's starting the rallies or he's the guy that's, you know, moving the the line so that Marcelo Zuna or Jose Martinez or, you know, whomever it is behind him can drive the runs in. He's incredibly impressive to me right now. And I don't know that there's another guy on the roster that can do all of the things that Paul DeYoung is doing. I felt that way before the season started, that that shortstop was probably the most shallow position as far as where guys could slide in to fill in if they needed to. And he's done nothing but reinforce that with what he's done at the plate. Well, yeah, and part of the reason why it's him is because of how strong the depth is in other places, especially right. the outfield. Uh, today up at, at St. Louis Bullpen, I don't know if you if you saw, but John Fleming had an article about kind of comparing uh, Bader and Fowler in center field and kind of juxtaposing that against like the argument um, back in the day of John Jay versus uh, Peter uh, uh, Borges. And as I was reading, I was just thinking like, wherever you come down on this, it just seems like a nice improvement from, and again, no offense to John Jay and Peter Borges, but (laughs) <laughs> Especially if Dexter Fowler is going to be like a 120 WRC plus guy, sure is a nice improvement to have the discussion be between Harrison Bader and Dexter Fowler. Agreed. You know, like, and <laughs> we saw Dexter Fowler. You know, he had he had a pinch hit appearance last night. He didn't play today because of I, I think what they said he has the flu. Yeah, is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay, man, I had the flu not too long ago. It's awful. Hope he feels better. But you know, a guy can get the flu in the outfield and I'm not that worried about it at all. Yeah. 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 Take, you know, take, take us, take a couple days. We got this, you know, we have, <laughs> we have, um, you know, reinforcements who can come in and do just fine. Yeah. And the infield is not so much that way. And that's not to take away necessarily from Jed Jerko or Jairo Munoz. It's just not, you know, you don't have five starters for three spots like you do in the outfield. And that's just kind of the reality of of where they are right now. But again, we did just talk about the fact that the Cardinals ran out and a getaway day lineup that probably is still <laughs> better than a lot of other major league everyday starting lineups. So depth is is one of their strengths at this point, to say the least. Remember this offseason when Fox Sports Midwest put out that sort of like soft propaganda piece on, uh, on, <laughs> How could I on the Harper situation and, and Dexter Fowler? Like, uh, <laughs> it would be really funny if uh, after one month of baseball, if they just went ahead and like doubled down on it, like, like put the video <laughs> back without any, without like telling anyone, they just like put the video back up and then like retweeted it or something because they took it down, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but like uh, we don't really talk about Bryce Harper anymore. Yeah, you know, I, that's that's the best thing you can say about the offense right now yeah. is we're not talking about Bryce Harper because we're we're satisfied with this offense. 
It'll be really interesting to see how that conversation changes when the Cardinals are playing the Phillies and, you know, they see Bryce Harper firsthand. But you're right. It's the issue with the Bryce Harper saga was always that the Cardinals have too many outfielders. Well, now we're seeing that not only do they have a whole lot of outfielders, they have guys that are earning their everyday spots. And you can't ask for any more than that from the guys that have been out there They all bring something a little bit different to the table and they are all contributing every time they're they're given the opportunity. And that's, again, just really special. And it's so much fun. Yeah. And I think so far, Schilt has done a really good job, like, you know, getting O'Neal, like, for instance, getting O'Neal in there tonight as a defensive replacement late in the game for Jose Martinez, Um, you know, just to get him at bats whenever you can. Uh, Obviously, Bader's going to be starting all the time, I would think, with lefties on the mound. And and he will, on days he's not starting, I expect him to also, as Schilt did last week, be a defensive replacement in center field and then, you know, kind of shift Fowler over to mm-hmm. uh, to right field. I just feel like, uh, you know, not that these are like, you know, galaxy brain moves, but I just feel like so far, <laughs> Schilt's done a really good job. Well, we've gone a month into the season and gone from, I'm not sure how this offense is ever going to pull it together to maybe Marcel Ozuna is going to ride the bench to he's going to hit everything that comes near him. And now we have an offense that we're comparing to 2004. So (laughs) that's the range of what happens in the first month of a season. I would be curious to know from all of you listening, what you think as far as how this lineup potentially compares to some of those great Cardinals offenses um, I would say in the recent past, but that's mostly because I don't have a whole lot of context before that. But if you do, that's great. Please, I, I would love to know how you think this team stacks up to those teams as well. Alex, I think that's all on the offense. I mean, I feel like we could go on and on and on, but that would be a little bit unnecessary after just one month of play. We'll circle back to this if the offense is still firing away another month from now. But instead, do you have a chirp of the week? I do. You know, you mentioned the 1987 team earlier, kind of the Whitey Ball era. I'm going to back up two years to 1985 just to kind of intro uh, who I'm going to talk about. But Tara, have you ever seen the replay or video of Jack Clark's three-run homer in game six of the 85 NLCS against the Dodgers? Sure. Yeah, you know you know what uh, home run I'm talking about. The Ozzie mm-hmm. Smith homer in game five is, is the more famous one. Um, partly because it was Ozzie Smith, partly because of Jack Buck's amazing call and that it was a walk-off at home. But Jack Clark's home run in Game 6 was absolutely huge. Um, And there's two things I want to point out about this and then segue into what I'm going to talk about. The first is, and I've never quite seen this before, or at least recently, since I've been watching baseball, but he hits this in the top of the ninth. They're on the road, and the entire dugout comes out to greet him at home plate, just like you would <laughs> if it was a walk-off home run. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure. You know, obviously, eventually they all made their way back to the dugout, <laughs> but you know, you don't see that anymore. I feel like I'm surprised the umpire wasn't like, "What are you guys doing? Get back in the it's dugout." Like a, it's like a high um, school baseball. Yeah, home run yeah, home something like that. Um, the second thing I want to point out is. As the ball is sailing into the left field stands, you see the Dodgers left fielder throw his glove down in disgust. And that Dodger left fielder was one Pedro Guerrero. 
he played, he kind of moonlighted all over, uh, you know, the field. He played first base, third base, and outfield. Um, Peter Guerrero was an awesome hitter. I believe Bill James basically said that Peter Guerrero, he said this in the 80s, was the best hitter God has made in quite some time or something like that. And that was because Peter Guerrero could absolutely mash the ball. Um, if you ever played RBI baseball on regular Nintendo and played at the National League, you know that as well because he was he was really good on um, that game. Well, the Cardinals, as, as you probably know, traded for Pedro Guerrero in 1989. Uh, no, scratch that, 1988. I'm sorry. In the middle of the season, 1988, they traded for a 32-year-old Pedro Guerrero. They sent John Tudor over to the Dodgers. Um, John Tudor, who had kind of been the ace of those uh, good Cardinals teams in the 80s. And I remember being really excited about this because, you know, we know the Cardinals no longer had Jack Clark. After the 87 season, Jack Clark, as a free agent, went to the Yankees. And so they no longer really had anyone who could hit the ball uh, very far. And that was a problem at Bush Stadium because back in those days, at Old Bush Stadium, it was 414 up center field. It was very hard place to hit a home run. And so around that time, the Cardinals got Tom Bernanski from the Twins in exchange for Tom Herr. And then also Pedro Guerrero from the Dodgers straight up to John Tudor. And Pedro Guerrero came over and, you know, he was no longer the guy he was in Los Angeles, except for one season. And that was 1989 when he was really, really good. He led the National League in doubles. He had 147 WRC+. Plus. You know, he basically ranked in the top 10 of almost all offensive categories across the league. He was a guy who... You know, t- took a decent amount of walks, but for a guy who was, I guess, considered a slugger, um, although he only hit 17 home runs that season, but that's because, again, Bush Memorial Stadium was just not an easy place to, to hit home runs. Um, but anyway, for a slugger for his day, he didn't strike out that much. Uh, he struck out uh, fewer than 13% of the time in uh, 1989. And he was just kind of like this big, uh, kind of broad-shouldered guy um, who could just kind of I'm trying to think who to compare him to. I remember he would just kind of turn on the ball and all of a sudden just send the ball in the left field seats. And I was, remember, I was very excited when the Cardinals traded for him. But unfortunately, in, in 1989, um, that was – and I think he finished like third in MVP that year, maybe behind – I know Kevin Mitchell won it, and I think Will Clark, Kevin Mitchell's teammate, may have finished second. Pedro Guerrero was somewhere up there, either third or fourth, something like that. But that was really his last good year in baseball. He was never a really good hitter after that, and he retired. He left baseball in 1992 at the age of 36, um, and was done. Fast forward to uh, 1999, and he gets arrested for being involved. Um, he gets arrested for conspiracy, I believe, to distribute 19 keys of cocaine. So you know, obviously, that's never good. But he was acquitted, um, and then. Somewhere around that time, I want to say about in the mid-2000s, he was like palling around with O.J. Simpson, you know? Like, obviously, that's a never very good thing so to do. he's made some consecutive uh, good life yeah, choices. No, yeah, <laughs> not awesome choices. Um, and in 2015, he suffered a stroke. And I remember when this happened uh, because all the reports coming out made it sound like he was most certainly going to die. And I think they said he was even brain dead. And then they kind of changed that to he was in a coma and based on earlier reports, I was taking this as a coma from which he would not wake up from. But I think, as his doctors explained, he just one day miraculously woke up. And he was very alert and talking to, you know, his wife and friends and family who had all supported him through thick and thin over the years. And um, it was kind of deemed a a miraculous recovery. And I, I can't, 
I'm having a hard time figuring out what he's up to now, but yeah, he, that was very good news that he, that he woke up from that. And it's funny when you think about Pedro Guerrero, because I think when people think about kind of the dull time in Cardinals uh, kind of recent history, and I'm talking about 88 through 95, you still think about Ozzie Smith. You think about kind of the young guys like Ray Langford and Gilkey and Jordan coming up, uh, maybe even Felix Jose, but I don't think we think about Pedro Guerrero uh, quite like we should. He was he was an important guy on a couple teams, and that 1989 team was actually pretty good when he had that really good season. That they were neck and neck with the Cubs um, to win that division until the very end, and they slipped off, and you know they they finished several games back. But everyone should go read about Pedro Guerrero. He has a great bio on the Sabre website. That's sabr.org. Um, I could not recommend it more. Um, I'm going to give you the author's name just because I enjoyed reading it so much. Uh, it was written by Frank Morris. So everyone should go read that. That is Pedro Guerrero. Uh, great Dodger. Uh, fun Cardinal. And he's your Chirp of the Week. There you go. That's always so fun to me to go back and look at those teams where you feel like you have a pretty good memory of who they were or what they were about. And then you find a couple of those guys and you go, oh, yeah, I forgot how good he was that year. So, Oh, you know what? I just remembered why I even thought of Pedro Guerrero in the first place. Okay. So he retired with a exactly 300 batting average. And the reason why I thought of that is because Albert Pujols is starting to sort of slip close to that 300 line, which if you looked at Albert Pujols' first 10, 11 years in the league, you would think he would never retire under 300, you know, because he was always, you know, 330, 340, stuff like that. So I really want Albert Pujols to hang on. I wanted to pull a Pedro Guerrero and at least finish um, at the very worst right at 300. That's It's funny that you mentioned that too, because going back and trying to figure out what the, the best Cardinals offensive team was, I was looking again at just how good Albert Pujols was all those years. So If you look at his first 10, 11 seasons with the Cardinals, it's like the greatest baseball card stats of all time because he's it's always above 300. He always yeah. hit at least 30 home runs. He always had at least 100 RBIs. He always had 100 uh, runs scored. It's just like a beautiful symmetry of just awesome baseball stats. Yeah, it's like every every major stat category that you think you might look at for, for any hitter, he checks all those boxes. It's It's insane. So, yeah, it's weird to think that maybe he wouldn't when he ends up retiring, but... Um, Maybe there's a maybe there's a Guerrero esque surge in there somewhere for Albert Pujols this season, who of course will be back in St. Louis for the first time later on this summer. So that'll be interesting to see. Alex, thank you for the chirp of the week. Make sure that all of you who are listening uh, check out that bio and follow Alex and I on Twitter. I'm at Tara Wellman. He's at AlexCard79. You can, of course, follow Birds on the Black at Birds on the Black. And if you have anything to add to this conversation about the best Cardinals offenses or about Albert Pujols or anyone else that piques your interest on any of those old rosters, feel free to share that with us on Twitter and to share the podcast with a friend if, you know, they're not listening already. So I think that'll do it for us this week. I'm Tara. He's Alex. We'll talk to you next time.